in public uh, rights preachers uh, tries to uh, say something fresh and new uh, becomes more and more difficult the longer you and the more frequently you speak uh, and it's one of the liabilities of my profession that I'm afraid that two things are real about what I do in public speaking. The only thing finally that's original is sin. And the second, uh, the second reality is that we tend to be redundant in our speaking. Um, and it's always been my desire to, to maybe sometime in my career have a new thought. Um, to not just be a collector of other people's thoughts. Um, I was speaking in Tulsa, Oklahoma several years ago and made what I thought was a profound presentation and following uh, my speech there was a regular line of people at the church door who were coming by and, and uh, with insipid comments and, and uh, meanderings into the inane like uh, well, we so much enjoyed having you here, you know, spoken in a voice of radical commitment to that thought. <laughs> uh, but there was a guy about uh, six or seven people back that seemed rather anxious about the time he got to me. It was kind of a refreshing thing. He said, uh, Dean McGee, uh, it seemed to me that you spoke too long. <laughs> that was a, frankly, it was refreshing. Uh, to hear somebody say something authentic, or what appeared to be authentic, because I looked up and about ten back, he got back in line. <laughs> and uh, people were working their way up, and I began to get a little more anxious, and he came up and he said, you know, you had a good opening, but you never closed. And I said, thank you very much. Let me know if I didn't look up, and he was at the end of the line, and, I, and he came by, and and he said, you mispronounced Ludwig Wittgenstein's name, and you split two infinities. I said, well, okay. <laughs> I went over to the rector at the coffee hour, and he was getting his coffee, and I went up to the rector, and I said, do you see that guy over there? And he said, yeah. I said, do you know him? He said, oh, of course, don't pay any attention to him. He said, he's not very bright, and all he does is repeat what other people say. <laughs> Oklahoma. <laughs> so I, I thought I might have thought of something original this week and thought I might share it. Um, I heard several years ago when I was in the Diocese of Kentucky at a retreat, a wonderful meditation by a man named Mark Dyer, who is now the Bishop of Bethlehem in Pennsylvania. <laughs> He's a former uh, Benedictine monk who left the Roman Catholic Benedictine order uh, and 
uh, became an Episcopal priest and is now uh, a bishop in the Episcopal Church in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And Bishop Dyer gave a most beautiful, though mysterious and indeed enigmatic, meditation on the Trinity, in which all he really said was that if you focus on the Trinity long enough, and that means a lifetime, that you will begin to understand its wisdom. But he said you must continually focus on the Trinity. Well, that's one of those kind of uh, monastic meditative sayings that uh, gives you permission to do things not ordinarily done, like focus on the Trinity, but it also uh, is like one of those things that you'd like to get around to eventually in your life. Um, and it's one of those things that if you ever did and somebody asked you what you were doing, you'd be embarrassed to tell them. Well, I'm focusing on the Trinity. But the, the more you think about that and the more one gives oneself permission to focus on the Trinity, it's amazing uh, what kinds of things happen. With a, a mind's eye and a turn of the Trinity, you have a kaleidoscopic kind of experience where different shapes, different constellations, uh, different things come to you as you focus on the Trinity. Uh, creator, sustainer, redeemer, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, however you want to talk about it, the church has always maintained three realities about the Trinity that are very important. And I will lift those up for you and see if we can conclude something uh, of a new thought. The first is that it's one reality. The Trinity is one reality. Three persons in relationship. Now that tension uh, created is almost more than we can stand. That's why we must focus on the Trinity, uh, because it has a sense of movement, a dynamism about it, that one can hardly contain it. Uh, so if we focus on the Trinity and remember the tension is that it's one in three in relatedness. Now, the reason why that's important to me is because a lot has been re written recently in the studies of family systems. And as I have read the work on family systems, I knew intuitively as I read about family systems and some of the assumptions in family systems that it had a transcendent theological quality about it that I couldn't quite identify. Now, the family systems, are, in some ways, is, is very complicated. In some ways, is very simple. Uh, one of the assumptions of family systems is that you have to give up linear cause and effect thinking. That is, A affects B, B affects C, uh, with a, a, a cause and effect chain that has D as a result. Uh, that you may see that D is a result of uh, a wild interchange among A, B, and C. So that linear thought of A plus B or that kind of logic doesn't apply in a family system, that there are more complicated contributories to an individual than simply trying to trace A to B to C. Now some of the other assumptions that have come out of family systems is that that the more we relate to one another in family systems, the more contaminated we become with one another's illnesses. And that in some system, generally, uh, there will be 
a personality who will arise to carry the symptoms for the family. And that the sickness is not just the individuals, but it is the sickness of generations or family systems where one person acts out the symptoms. And traditional uh, medical understanding of the model of sickness then, what we would do is treat the sick person uh, and really not deal at all with the systemic sickness. That the person who's carrying the symptoms may not be the sick person at all. He or she is just the one reflecting the symptoms. Some of the other words that have come out of that have been words like scapegoat, and that is to say that the family will find somebody in the system that will carry the symptoms of the illness, and they become the scapegoat for everybody. And then we play the game of both blame as well as justification, saying if it wasn't for them, that person, we'd be fine. Our marriage would be fine if it wasn't for this child acting out, or uh, we would uh, be healthier if it wasn't for our parents. And another familiar uh, part of family systems is the phenomenon of triangling. Now, triangling is where uh, we don't deal with one another, but we deal with a third person, and they're asked to carry our problems for us. And we hook other people into our sickness by triangling them uh, and making them both blame, cause, object, occasion for our own sickness. Now, this is a very superficial view of a very complicated system. But if you want to sum up family systems, and the, the issue, the fundamental issue of family system study is, how can I remain being an individual in a family? One of the things we know is that we can't become individuals without families. And then how can we remain or maintain our individuality in a family system in which is continually contaminating us with its own How can you begin, begin an in, become an individual in a family? Well, that's an interesting question, a, a very important fundamental question of one's own health. How can I be an individual in a family system? because we know that we cannot be or become without others. The infant, uh, left alone without somebody to give the infant an identity, both the nurture of food, but more so the nurture of growth psychologically, the child is not prosperous. The child may even disintegrate. So we need others in order to have an identity, but then how can we have an identity apart from others? This is the conundrum of being human. I mean, this is the difficult task. Well, well, where do we have a model for that? Now we're back to the Trinity. How can we be a part of something other than ourselves which makes us whole? It is an interesting relationship between the individual and his or her family and each person in the Trinity with the other two-thirds of the triangle. What about, there's a, a new study out. I frankly haven't read it. I heard about it yesterday at a track meet, and it was rehearsed again last night at dinner. Uh, some of you may have seen it. I'm anxious to see it because it, it affirms a lot of what those of us who didn't do well in school knew all along. And that is that there are several kinds of intelligence.
at least seven kinds, which is one of those mysterious religious numbers. And they're listed uh, not in order of priority, but, but in equal priority. And the one that the SATs that we worship uh, uh, gauges is only one kind of intelligence. Uh, and the other kinds of intelligence that have always been very important to those of us who didn't do well with books or tests is that inter- and intrapersonal intelligence. The ability to relate to another and the ability of one to relate to him or herself. That's a very worthy form of genius. Because that is, it seems to me, a very important part of life. How can I be me and still relate to you without you robbing me of my identity when in fact I'm dependent upon you for my identity. This is a difficult thing. All of a sudden you think the Trinity has mysterious kinds of enigmatic relatedness no more so than you. Are there not at least three ways to talk about your own self, and that is the invisible you of your own creation. That is, fully itself at conception. As you perhaps have heard me say, that I think that the, the song is in the egg that the bird will sing. The bird's journey is toward the song that has been given from conception. And so what it is that I am called to be, I am given at conception. I am whole at conception and given the possibility of journeying toward it in the fullness of time. Is there not an invisible you of the creator you. And isn't there then a you that incarnates in the world, that others see, which expresses the invisible you? And isn't there, in your relationship with another, a spirit that transcends the whole? A Holy Spirit. Now if this seems to somehow get beyond you that for a moment you seem like you have the color of it and, and then it begins to disappear into darkness or, or too much light. That's okay because I feel the same way about it. And that is if you focus on the Trinity, it leads you places that you wouldn't go alone, but it brings you back to yourself. If you focus on the Trinity, you begin to see the dynamic nature of the Creator, and then it mirrors for us the dynamic nature of the creature. How can I become fully what I am created to be without you? And how can I avoid you defining me? It's a life journey. And it takes the genius to be able to figure out how could I be me in relationship to you and the power of the one who created us both? Organisms, if they over-relate, they disintegrate. 
Organisms, if they're unrelated, disintegrate. How can we then be individual and a part of a whole? How can there be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet it is one? How can I be me, external, internal, in relationship to you? Does my incarnation of me, the one that you see and perceive, does it express the real me? Oh, I know. You're not particularly bored, it's just beyond you, right? <laughs> I know that you want to stretch um, to grasp this, but one of the frustrations of being human is, and one of the reasons that we're existentially angry and we act it out with one another is we cannot comprehend the whole. And yet, in flashes of moments, of imagination, we do grasp an image of wholeness. And then somebody comes to the line and reminds you that you split two infinities. <laughs> but I thought I had an original thought this week, and that was that family systems really is the theology of the Trinity. And the theology of the Trinity really is the primary archetypal understanding of the human being in community. And maybe we ought to focus on the Trinity more than we do. We're so afraid of it, not because we think it's going to destroy us. We're afraid of it because we cannot finally comprehend it. And we're not very good about staying with things that are elusive. Particularly Americans who want instant gratification. Now, this is something that you have a life's vocation to do, is focus on the Trinity, because it is a mirror image of our own try, uh, uh, attempt to understand ourselves as one person in community, whole. Now, the three things that I've talked about consistently uh, that human beings need in order to become whole is meaning, purpose, and a place to belong. Meaning in general purpose in particular, and something greater than yourself to which you can give yourself in order to discover who you are, meaning, purpose, and belonging. And they are not necessarily, we are not necessarily able to have any of those apart from each of the other. <laughs> that is to say, there is no purpose for me if there's not meaning in general. And there's not necessarily purpose for me if there is meaning in general. That is to say, if they're singing songs of love but not for me, I believe that there is a source to the mystery of creation, that all things are connected. It's only the limit of my horizon that I can't see how things are finally put together and that they appear to me to be disconnected, but they are connected. It's the limit of my understanding. But there is meaning in general, I believe, but there is no purpose for me. And we must discover what is our purpose, you know, what is our uniqueness, what is it that our name uh, details about us, what is it that uh, is absolutely unique about me, uh, what is my quintessential existence, what is my essence. And then, 
I can't have any purpose alone unless I see myself in belonging to something other than myself. Human beings are infamous for their need to belong. Uh, why don't you sometime, if you haven't already, uh, go through your pocket book and look at your membership cards. I mean, what did we do this morning in the exercise of asking you, do you feel like you belong here? Belonging is a very essential, absolutely necessary experience for human beings if they're going to be human. What do you belong to other than yourself? Now, why this is important is because meaning is God, purpose is Jesus, and belonging is spirit. Holy Spirit. Whether we're talking about family systems, how can I belong in something greater than myself, well, the Trinity, on which we might focus as the archetypal image of that, we're talking about the individual relating intrapersonally, not just interpersonally, and that is there is a me to whom I must relate that I experience in at least three ways. The whole me, the incarnated one trying to express that wholeness, and the me that I experience in relationship to another that is greater than what I have contributed. <coughs> I have a, a family album full of stories of the experience of meaning, purpose, and belonging in any one of the three. When I find meaning, I feel I belong to something other than myself. When I find I have purpose, I belong to myself. And when I belong, I find meaning and purpose. I mean, it is a whole. It is uh, a triangle, a pyramid, a trinity. Now, in some simple stories. What all of this finally sums to be is that there is something experiential about the Trinity and the systems that makes an incredible difference in our life. And that is that the Creator allows us to be creatures with the assumption that out of that relationship there will be a creation. The Creator allows creatures to be, and out of the relationship between Creator and creatures there is a creation. That the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Now we can experience that, and it makes all the difference. I mean, it brings wholeness. You know, when I was in my early 20s, after my first year in, my second year in seminary, uh, I worked for Operation Head Start. I was a social worker for Operation Head Start for the summer. I was assigned to a series of uh, daycare centers uh, in a housing project. Um, it was of the days of Operation Head Start, and my job was to be sure that the census information that we had on the parents and children in the project were accurate, and that was simply going door to door, asking people at this address, are you the name that's supposed to be here, and do you have two children, and so forth. And then to see that each of the children was enrolled in the Operation Head Start program, 
to see that the mothers, uh, almost exclusively, the mothers had enrolled their children in Operation Head Start. And then the third responsibility I had was to do a social work survey on the families and see what their needs were and how was it that the uh, program could meet their needs. Well, it was an eye-opening summer for a 23-year-old uh, to go in the housing project and go door to door and just experience that kind of bone-crushing poverty that we see in the inner city housing project. And secondly, it was eye-opening to see uh, what pathology there is when family systems are broken. Uh, the third uh, eye-opener for me was to see the hunger in these little children uh, to belong to something that wasn't fractured. I remember I had a little discretionary money, and so one of the families I went to see uh, the, the oldest of the three children, uh, it was about seven or eight, uh, wouldn't go uh, to the Head Start program, and therefore his siblings wouldn't go because he was uh, the caretaker for them and the leader. And the reason he wouldn't go was because he didn't have shoes, and he wasn't going to go because he didn't have shoes. And so I was able to take him and his little brother and sister to get shoes, and in this process I developed a relationship. Uh, he said to me, you're a big old boy, did you ever play any ball? <laughs> and uh, we were able to relate on that level. <laughs> the housing project was about five miles from downtown, and you could see the buildings from downtown. Uh, he said to me, and I said, I think what I'm going to do, Robert, is take you to get some shoes, and maybe you'll feel better about going to school. And he said, where are we going to get the shoes? And I said, downtown. And he said, good, I've never been there. Lived within sight line of downtown. He'd never been there. So I took him and his um, little brother and sister to get some shoes. Um, and when we... Um, sat down to get the shoes, the salesman asked Robert what kind of shoes he wanted, and he said he wanted some like mine. Yeah, that's a very simple story. I guess the ramifications of it are not simple. Um, there was a moment in that relationship when Robert saw that there was a possibility of something beyond his ghetto. I don't know whatever happened to Robert or but I know that I, Robert was probably equally as important to me as I was to Robert because I saw in a moment something transcendent about belonging, about getting outside of your own ghetto and giving yourself to something else, that in doing that, it enables somebody else to get out of their own ghetto and see something they haven't ever seen before, and that that risk-taking and belonging is like two parts coming together, and out of that 
there comes a whole that's greater than either of the parts. And then a spirit develops uh, that transcends either of the two parties, therefore it is other than human, by definition it's holy. And so that's where we experience the Holy Spirit. I'm very suspicious of the Holy Spirit doing a selfish act for an individual. That is to say that the Holy Spirit has affected me uh, at the exclusion of you. I'm very suspicious of that. Anybody who says that the Holy Spirit has entered them and they've become better than me, I'm a little suspicious of that. I'm also a little suspicious of anybody who has an experience of the Spirit and talks about it. I mean, I think when the Holy Spirit <clears throat> enters me in a relationship, uh, usually the first thing I do is shut my mouth. Uh, it's in those simple stories of unity, of belonging, to where we experience the wholeness of the Trinitarian formula, which is creator redeemer and sustainer and where are your moments of trinitarian experience you have them i guarantee you that you have them what you may not have is the discipline of focusing on them i mean where's the time that meaning purpose and belonging have come together for you and when is the time that you've had some sense of who i am and who you are and that they are separate and indivisible. Has a moment ever come when you felt that I am I and you are you and we exist together in the power of the one who created us both and therefore there is a spirit that arches over us that is greater than either of us by definition is other than human it is holy. It is creative. When you focus on the Trinity, and then focus on your own family system, and try to find out how it is that you can become whole, being individual in relationship to others. <coughs> this religion, by the way, is not about what you thought it was when you were 13. Thank God. <laughs> But those of you, of us, who reject religion, do so out of a 13-year-old mindset. I mean, is your spiritual maturity and education and discipline as mature as your MBA or MD or MDiv or DD? I mean, most people who reject religion as irrelevant uh, generally have about a sixth grade understanding of religion. And religion, by and large, is irrelevant to sixth graders. I know, I have one. <laughs> Hog tied at this very moment to a chair in the manger room. <laughs> He's in confirmation class, and he's 
he thinks it's about as irrelevant as you do. He went to a new school this year and he and developed uh, some significant relationships with uh, two little boys who are Jewish and he came back to me and he said, okay dad, now just, just tell me one more time. <laughs> What's the difference between the Christians and the Jews? Well, like most parents, you know, he asked me what time it was and so I built him a, not a watch, I, I built him a watch factory. <laughs> As his eyes were kind of rolling. <laughs> rolling back in his head, and I got to the part about the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> <laughs> he said, oh yeah, I remember that. He said, that's where Moses came down from the mountain and he said, I bring you... Fifteen, oops. <laughs> I bring you ten commandments. <laughs> and I said, no, son, that's Mel Brooks. <laughs> My point is this, that the religious symbols that are ours, as I referred to them before, they're the jewels that Eve smuggled out of Eden. Our religious symbols are archetypal mirrors of our own nature. Focus on the Trinity for you who live in family systems and see the model of how it can be done. Those of you who seek to become an individual Focus on the Trinity and see that it is possible to have inter- and intra-personal relationships. And those of you who are seeking meaning, purpose, and belonging, the Trinity shows you how it's done. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God. Three persons. Is it possible for you to be three persons and one at the same? Is it possible for you to exist in a relationship with yourself, another, and God at the same time? Is it possible for you to experience in a simple relationship with anybody the nature of the Trinity as creator, redeemer, and sustainer? A little black boy in a project? Well, what are your stories? You have them. And this is what our religion's about. It's not about following rules, trying to teeter-totter and walk the narrow ridge through life, worrying about whether we're going to fall off and go to hell. Well, you're not. If you want to go to heaven, you can. It's that simple. Now, the rest of the time, since we've cleared that one up, I'll tell you what, if you're living your life in fear of going to hell, then you won't ever live. You know, the piano player who just plays to avoid making mistakes never plays. I mean, it's in the mistakes that you learn to play. Come on. You're not going to hell, okay? 
I mean, if you want to, you can. Everybody. I mean, the rules seem to be clear from the revelation from sages and prophets and prophetesses and from our own, even from our Lord, that freedom means you can go to hell if you want to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. That's Christian theology. And you don't get there by following narrow ridge rules. You get there because it's a gift. Now, since we don't need to be afraid of that anymore, how can we experience it most fully and wholly? Well, I suspect if you ask yourself that question, that you focus on the Trinity for the rest of your life. And then reflect on your Trinitarian experiences. Integrate them. And you'll become more and more full of yourself. Or is it another? It's a Trinity. Amen.